Great. So I'd like to speak about the implications in history of Islam's orientation towards success. Remember that being rightly guided is meant to cause success in this life and the next. And the call to prayer actually says, you know, come, come to prayer, um, uh, come to success, come to success. Islam promises success. And you would have thought for the first thousands of years, thousand years that in many ways it was extraordinarily successful in that. Islamic military expansion spread across the Mediterranean into Africa, South Asia, Southeast Asia, good chunks of Europe, um, what is now Spain and Portugal, uh, Central Asia as well. Um, and the, the subjugation of huge Christian populations was part of that success. There were uh, traditionally five major centers of Christianity in the first few centuries. There was um, Rome, Constantinople, uh, Antioch, Jerusalem, and Alexandria. And four out of those five, three were conquered quickly. The fourth um, in the 15th century, Constantinople, Rome is still, still to fall. And uh, this success message was self-validating. The Quran says uh, that Islam will triumph over all other religions. It calls on believers to command right conduct, to forbid uh, what's wrong. Um, and its success validated that. But then from about 1500 onwards, its borders began to contract. And I don't think few of us realize how extensive was the loss that Islam experienced from about 1500 on. And it was basically caused by the rise of Europe. So I'll give you some examples. The Portuguese conquered Oman in 1507 and occupied it for 150 years. They conquered Goa in 1510. They liberated Christian Ethiopia in 14, 1543, or at least Portuguese soldiers helped Christian Ethiopia to liberate itself from what had been an absolutely devastating Islamic conquest. There was a glut on the slave market all the way to India after Ethiopia was conquered um, in the previous century. Actually, it's amazing that Ethiopia remained Christian and independent of Islam for almost a thousand years, even though it was right on the doorstep of Arabia. But it was Portuguese that provided the weapons that enabled the Christians to be liberated. Um, the Ottomans were defeated at their attempts to conquer Vienna in 1683. And then after that, Hungaria and Transylvania and a number of Eastern Europe regions were progressively liberated from Ottoman rule. Napoleon conquered Egypt in 1798. For centuries, the Barbary states in North Africa had been conducting slaving raids against Southern Europe. It's estimated that more than a million Europeans were sold into slavery by the Barbary states in North Africa. When the Americans found that some of their ship's crews were being captured and sold as slaves, they ended up sending in the Marines. They still sing about in their anthem from the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli. In fact, for a period until the Americans went in, they were paying 10% of their annual revenue to the Barbary states to prevent their shipping from being interrupted by the Barbary pirates. The power of the Barbary states to conduct slaving raids against Europe was broken after that. A long series of defeats for the Ottomans took place in Russian-Turkish wars stretching across 400 years 
and culminating in the 1877-78 Russian-Turkish War, which led to the independence of Romania, Serbia, Montenegro and Bulgaria from Islamic rule. British suppression of the vast slave trade of the Omani Sultanate took place from the 1820s to 1870s. This was the Oman Sultanate based in Zanzibar. The Muslim principalities in Southeast Asia were overthrown by the Portuguese, Spanish, Dutch and English between 1511 through to 1904. The final destruction of Muslim rule over the Hindus was ended at the hands of the British in 1857. The Ottoman Empire was dismantled in the aftermath of World War I, leading, for example, to the liberation of Greece, which had been under Islamic rule for the best part of, of uh, 900, 800 years. The establishment of the modern state of Israel in 1948 in territory formerly ruled by Islam, and including uh, a very large number of Jews who emigrated from Islamic countries to get to Israel, is being considered by Muslims to be the crowning humiliation in uh, almost 500 years of defeats. Another part of the decline of Islam was the gradual improvement of non-Muslim communities living under Islam and there are repeated lamentations that you read in Islamic literature from the 18th and 19th century complaining about the improving conditions of Christians and Jews who were making themselves equal uh, to, to, to Muslims in their dress and in the way they were behaving. Now in response to this crisis of defeat when you have a religion of success. If you have a religion of success and you're being defeated, there's a problem. You know, it's like saying judgment will fall upon you and then it doesn't come. What are you going to do about this crisis? Um, revivalist movements began. And all the revivalist movements share one big idea. That is, if Muslims are strictly following the Sharia, if they're on the right path, they'll be successful. So there's a program then to, to implement stricter Islam in order for Muslims to be successful in the world, which means they'll be dominant politically, militarily, culturally in every way. So you have the Wahhabi movement that begins back in the 18th century, a movement to purify Arabia. The Diabandi movement beginning in the, in the 19th century in India, which is now a huge movement. The Tablighi Jama'at began in 1927 in India. The Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt in 1928. Jamaat e Islamiyah in India and Pakistan in the 1940s. Hizbut Tahrir in 1953. The Organization of Islamic Cooperation, which is the biggest international um, association of nations outside of the UN, was started in 1969 after the disastrous war against Israel. The Iranian Revolution in 1979 uh, was heralded as a, as a revolution to introduce uh, true Islam again and therefore to make Islam great in the world. Uh, you know, a, a lightning bolt of excitement went through the Islamic world when that happened. Hamas uh, arose, founded in 1988. Al-Qaeda in 1989. Abu Sayyaf in 1991. Boko Haram started in 2009 the Islamic State in 2006, every single one of these groups has as a belief that if strict Islam is implemented, Muslims will be dominant and successful in the world again. And there's a huge amount of literature written by their gurus and their guides. Maududi, who is an Indian Muslim, wrote in a book called Let Us Be Muslims, which has been extraordinarily influential. He said, whoever you are, in whichever country you live, you must strive to change the wrong basis of government and seize all powers to rule and make laws 
uh, you should seize the power from those who do not fear God. The name of this striving is jihad. If you believe Islam to be true, you have no alternative but to exert your utmost strength to make it prevail on earth. You either establish it or you give your lives in this struggle. ISIS, one of its goals is to rid Sunnis of the oppression of the rejectionists, that's the Shiites, and the Crusader occupiers, the Europeans and Americans, Westerners, and to restore rights even at the price of our own lives, to make Allah's word supreme in the world, and to restore the glory of Islam. Restore the glory of Islam. This is the revival's move in this, um, in this tradition. Now, when um, the Soviet Union fell, this was regarded by the revivalists as a proof that the program was working. So Sheikh Abdullah Azam's tract or book called Join the Caravan, which is banned in Australia, by the way, he says this. The struggle which Sheikh Azam, who was a, Sheikh Azam was a revivalist preacher, the struggle which he stood for continues despite the enemies of Islam. And then he quotes the Quran. They seek to extinguish the light of Allah by their mouths, but Allah refuses, save to perfect his light, even if the disbelievers are averse. It's he who has sent his messenger with the guidance and the true religion, in order that he may make it prevail over all religions, even if the pagans are averse. And then the, the writer goes on to say, since the book was written, that is Sheikh Azam's book, the Soviets have been expelled from Afghanistan by Allah's grace, and the entire Soviet Union has disintegrated. So what they're saying is the Soviet Union fell apart because they were defeated by the Taliban in Afghanistan. So if, the, if this revival movement could destroy the Soviet Union, why couldn't destroy the United States or Europe or indeed any power that stands against the glory and the revival of Islam? So the first crisis of Islam for 500 years was the rise of Western power, Christian power really, from the point of view of Muslims, at the expense of Islam, of political Islam. Then you have the revival response from the 18th century to the present, culminating in something like the Iranian Revolution, an attempt to implement pure Islam. But then there's another crisis that happens, because if you tell Muslim people that when strict Islam is implemented, utopia will break out, all their problems will be solved, there'll be no more injustice, there'll be no more stealing, because you'll cut hands off thieves so no one will want to steal. But then what happens is they find out that the people in power are the ones that are stealing. The Ayatollahs are stealing, and who's going to cut their hands off? And the whole system becomes corrupt. And so you have groups like the Taliban, the Iranian Revolution, the Algerian uh, Islamist uh, Revolution, the Muslim Brother fiasco in Egypt, the failure of Turkey under Islamist leadership, which is going in a very difficult direction, Khartoum's genocidal campaigns against its own citizens, Christian and Muslim, uh, they've killed more than a million people in uh, genocidal attacks against the southern Sudanese who are Christians and animists and also against Darfuris who are um, nominally Muslim. The Islamic State in Syria and Iraq and all its destruction. Every single one of these, these situations, huge casualties and destruction has been caused by, in the context of groups claiming to have the mantle of Islamic revivalism, restoring the glory of Islam. Well, what, and then you have the problem of economic failure and the demographic bubble Vast numbers of young people without a future and without hope, like the young man in Tunisia who, I think it was Tunisia, who burned himself alive when his fruit stall was taken away because he had no hope, triggering off the so-called Arab Spring. And not only that, but oil prices dropped, so even the oil stakes are struggling. 
so what, what do you do with that? Well, it, the first crisis was the Europeans are doing too much better than us. The second, so you have the solution, let's be more Islamic. But then when we are more Islamic, it gets worse. Things are terrible. And after a while, someone says, maybe Islam is the problem. So the Muslim Brotherhood said for decades, Islam is the solution. Are you poor? Islam is the solution. Do your children need medical care? Islam is the solution. And they put a lot of effort into doing social justice work at the grassroots level to help people in need. But when they took power, they appointed terrorists to run provinces. And, and people were being killed. You know, women were being abused. The court system wasn't working. And within a year, the whole people of Egypt were groaning and they asked the army to take over and to expel the Brotherhood. You can't tell people for decades that Islam is a solution and then when you get power, cause havoc and then expect people to still believe that Islam is the solution. I mean, how long can people believe that there's a utopia just round the corner if only pure Islam is implemented? And what's happening is that huge spiritual confusion and anxiety has resulted across the Muslim world. And different nations are in different stages of this confusion or anxiety. Um, let me give you an example. Iran, the Iranian revolution in 1979, there were about 400, 500 converts from Islam to Christianity in 1979 at that time, up until that time. This was after more than a century of missionary movement in Persia. And since then, however, it's estimated that as much as a million Iranians have become followers of Jesus. And Islam is intensely disliked by the vast number of people in Iran. And it's very frightening for the government in Iran. They're anxious about house churches being formed. I heard the testimony of um, the Assemblies of God Church, which existed in Tehran, opposite Tehran University, had a few thousand members. The government shut down all Protestant churches. They let the Armenians continue. And now they have 15,000 members in house churches meeting secretly. And this is, this is kind of revolutionary, what's happening in Iran. Uh, Iran is converting to Christianity. You can't go from 300 to a million in 40 years and not look forward in another 30 years and say, if that rate continues, Islam will be a Christian, I mean, Iran will be a Christian nation. So they had the first revolution, and they're also the most open to the gospel. I mean, I have a leader congregation of Iranians in Melbourne and know them very, very well. They don't want anything to do with Islam. They dislike it. They can't believe that in Australia we give it the time of day at all. They think we're making a terrible mistake to just treat it as yet another culture in a multicultural mix. I'm not advocating for persecuting Muslims or anything, but their position on Islam is, is much, you know, they have a very visceral uh, view. And these are especially the young people who grew up since the revolution. But it's not just there. My friends who are working in the Middle East uh, amongst refugees from Syria and Iraq, they said they've never seen so many Muslim Arabs coming to the Lord, coming to Christ. Churches in Germany are full of refugees who were Muslims a few years ago. It's ironic, isn't it? And the, the changes that are happening. I sometimes speak to groups and I say, imagine a world in which China is a Christian superpower, in which Iran is a missionary Christian nation evangelizing into, the middle, into Central Asia and in which France is a Sharia state with a nuclear bomb. And what sort of world will it be, you know, because of the changes that are happening? In, in France today, there's more than 100,000 converts to Islam. French people have converted to Islam. 
Um, and the world is changing. But my main point here is that the crisis in Islam has been building for hundreds of years. It's very deep and it's unrolling from country after country. The numbers of people turning to the gospel are huge. The huge need is discipleship, discipleship, discipleship. Who's going to disciple these millions? Who's going to help them change and develop a new Christian culture, change a whole worldview? It's fascinating working with the Iranians in Melbourne because what they're desperate for is to build a whole new life. Everything needs to change. All their values need to change. The destructive values that they recognise they're not happy with at every level needs to be rebuilt. So you're just constantly teaching emotional health, relationships, what does it mean to follow Jesus, this is how you do family life, you shouldn't curse your children, you know, this is how you treat women. They're, that's what they want. They know that it, everything's messed up and they want it to change. But imagine you've got millions of people asking for that help. Who's going to provide that? Where are those disciples going to come from? By the grace of God. Miraculous movements. There have been a number of books written about this. Jerry Trousdale's Miraculous Movements, How Hundreds of Thousands of Muslims Are Falling in Love with Jesus, or David Garrison's A Wind in the House of Islam. And it's striking that where there have been some of the most aggressive Islamist movements, there have been the greatest turning to Christ. Iran is an example. Algeria is another. They had a very bloody Islamic revolution that was put down by the army, and now there are tens of thousands of Berbers that are turning to the Lord. Um, Garrison says, at the time he wrote his book a few years ago, that there are at least 82 what he calls people movements to Christ among different Muslim groups. A movement is at least 100 churches planted or 1,000 believers baptised over a two-decade period. He said there were two such movements like this in the 19th century. There were 11 movements in the 20th century. And between the year 2000 and 2012, there were another 69 such movements in the Muslim world. And this is all over the Muslim world, from sub-Saharan Africa, from Persia, from the Arab world, from Central Asia, South Asia, and Southeast Asia. The fields are ripe for a great harvest such as never been seen in the world of Islam in 1400 years. Um, I could tell you many testimonies of people who've come to faith out of an Islamic background. God is doing amazing miracles. He's speaking to people in dreams and visions. He's challenging them in unexpected ways. And I think we, as, as part of the church, have a responsibility to, to ask the Lord, how can we help? You know, send forth laborers in the harvest field. Lord, what can I do to help? Um, one of my friends is a, is a man who's around 50. He was um, damaged by chemical warfare in the Iraq-Iran war and later became an organiser against the government and was involved in a demonstration where he was really badly beaten up by the government officials, so badly that he was in a coma for quite some time and when he came out of the coma his body was paralysed and he was unable to care for himself. One day he was watching TV and his wife went off to um, for, for something and he happened to be watching a TV evangelist who was saying, you know, just call out to Jesus, call out to Jesus. He fell asleep and while he was asleep he had a dream where um, he found himself in a garden and it was a night, dark night, a wind was blowing and it was a desolate place in this garden and as he was sitting there um, 
He saw a light approaching from a distance in his dream. And as the light came near, he realized the light was a person, that there was someone carrying a cross who was being beaten and pushed along by people he identified as Roman soldiers. And as this person came near, um, he looked straight into my friend's eyes. And, but my friend could not speak. He didn't have the words. And then the group began to move away. And as they moved away, the, it began to get very dark again. And he realized he was falling back into darkness. And he cried out the name of Jesus. Jesus, help me. And as he did that, he woke up. And he, his whole body was hot. Um, and he felt so hot that he reached out his hand to pick up a glass of water. And he realized he could use his arm. And then he got out of bed and started jumping around and shouting. And his neighbors came down and said, what happened? Which Islamic saint healed you? <laughs> and he, he, he actually found it quite hard to tell them because his, uh, his family is very religious. And he, he he's still had problems with the government. And he fled to Australia where he's seeking asylum and waiting for his case to be resolved. And uh, had the privilege of baptizing him. And he said, I've waited six years for this day. And there's so many, many, many stories. People with very broken lives, very broken homes. You know, people who've suffered sexual abuse, who've been tortured, who've been drug addicts, who's, who, who've just so much trauma in their lives. And they're just turning to Jesus and they're, they're asking for him to show up. And he is. He's doing these amazing miracles. I'm, I'm an evangelical Anglican. You know, I went to a good evangelical college, but I suppose you could say I have a charismatic twist in me and I, I believe in the power of God to heal and I have a high expectation. We've seen many miracles of God and deliverance and, you know, I, I believe in a God who is active in this world. Um, but I've never seen so many miracles as I have amongst the Iranians. I've never seen so much demonstration of the power of God. It's like the Holy Spirit is impatient for them and has a heart for them is saying, I've had enough, it's time, it's time, I want them back. I had another couple who came and, and um, uh, they, they came into church, an Iranian couple, they, they looked really pretty traumatized and worn out and they shared to me later that their relationship was on the rocks, they weren't married uh, and they were in a difficult way. He'd had a, a bad car accident, he had lots of pieces of, of steel in his body, holding his body together, a lot of pain. Um, it was hard to drive in a car. They had to drive an hour and 20 minutes to get to church. They still do. They're there every week but um, it, because of his problem with his back. And Anyway, I prayed for them. I prayed for peace and I prayed for healing for him. And the next week he came back and he said, look, my pain is just almost gone. It's gone from seven, which is pretty high level, to two, which is almost you could just forget about it. And a peace had come into their home and their life and this kind of trauma that was in their eyes had gone and um, we had a just had a camp recently where I led the, the whole group of them through prayers renouncing Islam and praying for a breaking of curses and setting free and they were just so impacted deeply impacted by that and um, and they said we want to give our lives to the Lord you know and it was so funny and then he said oh I want to get married now <laughs> I said oh that would be a good idea he said, now that we have faith, I want us to have children. <laughs> We've got something to live for. <laughs> you know, we, we have something that we can pass on. And uh, it's, it's, it's kind of uh, a bit overwhelming how passionate people can be when they're saved radically. But um, what I'm describing is happening a lot of time in lots and lots and lots of people's lives. 
But it's important to understand that, that this is not just happening by accident, that it's the result of a long process that's been, been happening for centuries. And we are standing at a kind of remarkable place in history at the moment. I want to just step back from this a bit and um, just make another comment about some things I've shared before throwing it all open for questions. Um, Islam says to Christians, we, we worship the same God, we share this heritage, you are sort of like us but a bit removed, you know, and come home, basically, they say. To your tr Islam is the true Christianity. And for people doing mission in the Islamic world, this can sometimes be confusing. And my impression of missionaries is that sometimes they can be quite critical of Islam, but sometimes it's almost as though they think Muhammad was a prophet of God. And they can be so kind of pro-Islamic that the boundaries between Christianity and Islam get blurred. And um, I just want you to be aware of that spectrum. That, and, and I actually see that tendency, almost like some people call it Chrislam, of seeing Islam as kind of just needing a little bit of cleaning up and then it'll be the gospel. That's, to me, that's actually a, a strong influence of Islamic theology. And it's nothing to do with, with what, it's nothing to do with love, actually. It's a mistake. It's thinking that you have to love Islam, whereas in fact you should be loving Muslims. And, the, and Islam is a, is a burden to Muslims. It's not, it's, the key to loving Muslims is not loving Islam. Then when Jesus said, love your enemy, he didn't mean love what they stand for or love the fact that they hate you. He said, love them, not their ideas. I think it's because Jesus said, love our enemies, that in our Western tradition, you're allowed to completely disagree with someone without having to punch them in the face. You know, you, you don't have to agree with Islam or think Muhammad's righteous or, 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 or praise Islam in order to love Muslims and to be willing to share the truth of the gospel. And I, I spent a number of years living with Muslim people doing my PhD in linguistics. I loved it, had a wonderful time. They were very welcoming to me, very gracious. I was able to talk about my faith. But I also was aware that there were Christians in the village who had relatives killed in, in attacks uh, in the past and that churches were burnt and there was a dark side as well. And that's, that, that was a history that was part of the theological content of Islam that I didn't want to engage with at the time. Um, but I, I encourage people to build connections with Muslims, make friends with them, but don't, don't let your worldview, your Christian worldview, be undermined by a teaching that's not, nothing to do with the gospel. You know, be clear about following who you follow. When I first read all this stuff about Muhammad, I found it very disturbing, and I kind of looked at it with the eyes, eyes of a theologian. My job is converting people and changing, messing with their worldview and changing their head. You know, that's, that's what a pastor is supposed to do. You undermine people's worldview, lead them to Jesus, offer them something that's true, and help them to rebuild their lives, okay? And when I read all this material, I thought, if you were, if you were actually trying to mould people into the model of the life of Muhammad, this was bad news for the world, you know? And I felt sad about it. But the good thing about all that is that I really understood in a way I'd never fully understood before how revolutionary and amazing the message of Jesus is. Because I'd just grown up with it. I just, I just thought that's how life is, you know, that, that life is like Jesus. You just, I heard the gospel since I could, the earliest since I could hear or read. My parents read the Bible with, with us when we were kids. I just, in a way, that was my whole world. But when I realised that you could have a completely different world built on completely different principles, 
and it could produce so much trauma and destruction. I just fell in love with Jesus so much more, and it made me more passionate about Jesus. Uh, and um, so that's really where I want to leave you to encourage you to be bold about Jesus, to be aware as a theological college that there's this incredible need uh, to equip the nations and um, to be aware of the challenge that's ahead and that sometimes people get confused by this, these teachings and this, these doctrines. And it's good to know the truth and, and also to live in love as well. I'm going to throw it open for about half an hour of questions and um, we'll see how we go. Yeah, Jenny has a question. Thank you. Was he a person or was he a person's That's a really good question. And I actually don't know the answer to that. I think if you'd asked me five years ago when I'd read the life of Muhammad and all the Islamic sources, I would have said, um, he is real because I found the story so complex, so interesting, and I couldn't believe how anyone had made it up. But since then, I've looked at other evidence, um, which has made me see that there are severe problems with the historical account of Muhammad. And some of those I've mentioned, for example, the Quran has such little reference to a person called Muhammad, and he mentioned four times. There's almost no reference to Mecca and Medina. There's also lots of references in the Quran that don't make sense, like the Quran says, look at the olive trees, look at the flowers and the fields, they are signs of God. Now, if you're living in Mecca or Medina, there's no fields, there's no olive trees. The Quran berates Muhammad, no, his enemies are berating him because he doesn't own a garden. Like, this messenger is not important because he doesn't have a garden. There are no gardens in Mecca. It doesn't make sense, like, Mecca's the wrong location for this text. And that throws into question everything. There's also historical issues that the words Muslim, Islam and Muhammad only appear in the historical sources quite late. And the earliest references to Muhammad outside of Islam are references to like a military leader or a tribal ruler. It doesn't seem to fit the religious brief of the Quran. Um, uh, there's also there's the geographical problems uh, of there's stories in the, in the Quran that don't make sense, like there's a description of trade in Mecca that, that um, scholars have critiqued. Um, there's problems about uh, the Jews, like there's archaeological problems, like in Mecca and Medina, um, there is, I've spoken to people who have connections into archaeology and there's actually no archaeology in Mecca. There's nothing there at the time of Muhammad. No one has ever found anything from that time, evidence of settlement. Like it, the archaeological evidence comes from later. Um, so that there's lots of gaps in history. Another interesting thing too is that there's a Canadian guy called Dan Gibson and he did a study of the way mosques are oriented. And he looked at all the earliest mosques and he asked, which direction do the mosques face? In that time, Muslims and also Jews prayed in a particular direction, to the east or to Jerusalem or to something. And so you build a mosque facing in the direction you pray. And what he found is that for the first century of Islam, all the mosques faced Petra, century and a half. And then they begin to move until they finally all face to Mecca. But that happens 150 years after Muhammad. And that's completely inexplicable from the historical sources. Also, the dialect of the Quran is definitely the dialect of Petra. And the gods that are mentioned, the pagan gods that are mentioned, like Alat, are Petran gods. They're not known to be the gods of um, 
of uh, Mecca. And the Meccan dialect could not possibly be the dialect of the Quran. Um, so there's all these problems. There's problems with the historical account. Then you've got the problems of these manuscripts that seem to date back even before the life of Muhammad. So I've come to the... Whereas before I was... I, was, I believed the, the, the richness of these accounts didn't make sense. I've now come to think that the Quran is actually represents the fruit of a religious movement that existed well before Muhammad and that somehow these texts were taken up and attached to another figure, uh, an Arab, um, who, was, who was somehow associated with the stories. It, the Arabs were rising around the time of Muhammad and they became a major force and this became their religion and somehow it happened. But I'm, I'm not a historian enough to be able to put it together. So there are serious doubts about the historical Muhammad, whether he existed. It's a bit of a... I, I think the Muhammad of, his, the, Muhammad of, the, of the Hadiths, the traditions, is a powerful construct. You know, he has a personality. The Muhammad of Islamic history has a character, a history, a biography, a personality. But is it completely fictional? Perhaps it is. I'm not sure. <coughs> then you've got the problem, as I said, of all the, the evidence that all these hadiths and traditions were made up. They seem to support agendas that don't fit at the time, or they seem to be post hoc explanations of the Quran. So that's another reason why it's, it's, the history is problematical. Yeah. That's why when I, when I did the thesis on the theology of the Quran, I said, Let, let's just ignore Muhammad, ignore his biography. Ignore all the historical sources. Just throw that out the window and read this as a work of theology and say, what does it say? And you actually notice lots of things that, that, that are not picked up in the story and are not emphasized, um, that, that, that fade away and become less important, but actually really important in the story. If you're going to read about the life of Muhammad, read Ibn Isaac's original, you know, the, the translation of that by, by Kuyem, which is, um, read the original Arabic. It's hard to read. Ibn Ishaq. It's uh, called the life of Sirah. It's the life of Muhammad. You can get it off. Um, I think it's Oxford University Press, and it's translated by Guillaume. I'm not quite sure how he pronounced his name. It's actually originally written by Ibn Ishaq and edited by Ibn Hisham. This is the earliest available biography of Muhammad. Um, a, a large part of the earlier part is prehistory stuff before Muhammad. Um, but that's, if you want to actually read the life of Muhammad from... This is originally supposedly written about 150 years after him and then edited about 200 years after him by Ibn Hisham. And, uh, I mean, if, if you knew someone who wanted to become a Muslim and you were worried about that, I'd say, have you read that? You know, how can you become a Muslim if you've never read an early source of his life? It's like becoming a Christian without reading the Gospels. It doesn't make sense. <laughs>